All right, it's time to enter into the Word, so let's pray as we get ready to. Lord, we thank you for your Word. Thank you for your Spirit and how you use your Word to speak to each of us today. How no matter when this was written, your Spirit is alive in it and it has something for us today. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to what you want to speak to us, Lord. I pray that you will take my words and fill them with your Holy Spirit so that they are your words and not my words, Lord. Thank you that you will bring about your will during this time. We dedicate this time to learning from you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. If you want to begin to turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to read all of chapter 3. We're going to read the first 17 verses of chapter 4 as well. So it's a bit of, bit of a larger chunk of scripture today. But we have skipped a little bit in our story. We've been kind of going chronologically through the Bible. We've looked at Adam and Eve. We've looked at Noah. We looked at, what was the next one? It just told me to my mind. Abraham. We've looked at Abraham, and then we looked at Abraham and Isaac. And we're going to jump into the future quite a few years. All right, because after Abraham and Isaac, we and we discussed this a little bit at the end of last week's sermon that Isaac will then end up having two kids. He will have Jacob and Esau. They're going to have a bitter twin rivalry that does not go well for um, really either of them. And then Jacob is going to be where the promise continues for the people of Israel. And he will end up having 12 boys and then other children as well. And those 12 sons will become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the start of this nation that Abraham had been promised. And from them will come countless and count, well, not countless, quite a few Israelites. Uh, we didn't look at their youngest son, his youngest son, Joseph, or his, one of his youngest sons, Benjamin, is his youngest, um, Joseph, which is the... He's the last part of Genesis. The last like 11 chapters of Genesis is about Joseph and his story and how he is favored by God and God plans to use him. And, and his brothers don't like that because he is not the oldest. He's not the heir. And he acts like he is. He acts like he is this special person, which God had deemed him to be. They plan to kill him. At the last minute, they change their plans, and instead they sell him into slavery. He gets sent to Egypt, where he becomes just a slave there. And he goes through quite a bit of an ordeal through that process. His owner's wife falls in love with him and, and tries to seduce him, and he won't have it. He is a man of honor. And the wife gets angry, and she tells her husband that he seduced her, and Joseph gets sent to prison. And he's in prison there for several years. But everywhere he goes, God gives him favor. While he was a slave, he became the head of the household as the slaves. Even when he was in prison, God gave him favor to the point that the warden left him in charge of the prison. Like, you know, not what we normally see, right? You don't normally see a prisoner who sort of gets put into position of power. While he's in prison, he interprets a couple dreams for some of the king's servants. They promise to get him out and forget, and he's in prison for quite a while, but eventually the king, the pharaoh, hears of Joseph, 
when the Pharaoh starts having these horrible dreams that he cannot understand, and he keeps having them. It's one of those reoccurring things. And the one, the one servant who Joseph interpreted the dream for has this remembrance of, oh, yeah, yeah, hey, I know a guy who knows things about dreams. Has Joseph come? And Joseph predicts, based on the dreams, that there's going to be seven years of plenty, abundance of food, followed directly by seven years of extreme famine, and that there will be no food during that time. The Pharaoh is so impressed, he places Joseph in charge of the, the planning and the, the execution of preparing Egypt for this. All of a sudden, Joseph has gone from being a slave to a prisoner, to being the guy directly underneath the Pharaoh in power, in the power line. He is the second in command in the largest country in the world. Through his guidance and God's using him, they save all this food up so that when the famine comes, and you have to understand, it's not just a famine for Egypt, it is a worldwide famine. Everywhere that is that we are aware of was in a famine. And all of a sudden, and the Bible is very specific about this, Joseph, through Joseph, God has prepared the people of Egypt to be the world's saviors. Every single place in the world came to Egypt in order to survive. The Bible says that Joseph saved the world through his suffering, really. He became a slave, and then he became a prisoner, and and he endured all of that so that God could use him to save not only Israel, not only Egypt, but everyone, all right? But during that process, his family needs food, and they come to Egypt to get food. Joseph recognizes his brothers. He sort of plays aloof, and they don't recognize him, because remember, they're not expecting their brother to be this high and mighty Um, person in Egypt, they think he's just a slave and they assume he's probably dead. But he plays a trick on them. He puts some valuables inside of one of their satchels that they give them of all their food and then he sets the guards on them and they get arrested and he keeps the youngest brother, Benjamin, who is his only natural brother, uh, the rest of his brothers were half-brothers, they keep him as a hostage and says, you need to go and you need to get your father if you want your brother back. During that time, they he reveals to Benjamin, his brother, hey, it's actually me, Joseph, we're brothers, and they you know, have this amazing reunion. And the brothers go back to Israel. Jacob is not well enough to really travel. They come back wanting to figure out how to, how to solve this, and he can't take it anymore, and he expresses who he is to them. They are so, there's so much remorse for what they do. They beg for his forgiveness and he forgives them. And they then go and get their whole family and bring them to Egypt. The Pharaoh loves Joseph so much because of what he did that he gives Joseph and his family the best plot of land in Egypt to live on. And they do. And their family explodes and multiplies over the next several centuries. The the people of Israel become really, it's a nation within a nation. There's like millions of them now. And the Pharaoh comes to power who does not remember Joseph. 
and he sees these Hebrews in his land, and they are so numerous that he is afraid that at any moment, if they choose to, they could revolt and take over. So he hatches a plan to deal with them, and they enslave the entire Hebrew nation. The Israelites become the Egyptian slaves, and they get put into complete captivity and oppression. All right? For the next 400 years, they are in captivity. They're suffering. They're enduring something they never should have had to endure. During that time, they continued to grow as a people, and the Pharaoh decided he needed to put a stop to it. He needed to slow them down. And he decided to make an edict that they would, they would basically, well, the plan was to kill every male child two years and younger with the intention that if, if there isn't a generation of males, then the families will slow down in their production of more children. And he instructs all of the midwives of Israel, if there is a male, you are to kill him. The the midwives do not listen. They don't. And that's a really important thing, because in, in Exodus, the two midwives who saved Moses are so important that the scriptures remembers their names. They're just midwives. In the world at large, they were nothings. But because they listened to God, who instructed them to ignore the Pharaoh's edict, the people will ultimately become free. So, we know the story of Moses, or a lot of us know the story of Moses. A Hebrew woman has a baby boy. She has him for as long as she can keep him without him... uh, causing too much suspicion, because all of a sudden when you start hearing a baby repeatedly, people start to take notice if you've ever had babies, which all of us, not all of us, but most of us have. They're loud. You can't keep them quiet all the time. And so she decides that she's going to hide him, and she hides him in the rushes of the Nile. And his sister, his older sister, keeps watch over him. And his basket, if you've ever seen any of the different variations of this movie, uh, my favorite is Prince of Egypt, it's the animated version, um, because Moses doesn't just like get put in the bushes. like He goes on this massive voyage through the busyness of the Nile before he finds the pharaoh, the pharaoh's daughter. I don't know, maybe a crocodile nearly got him. We don't know. But he... The basket holding Moses is found by the daughter of the Pharaoh. The one who made the edict to kill all of these baby boys finds the boy and decides she wants to keep him. She couldn't think of killing him. So she does. She keeps him. And she is the one who names him Moses. Isn't that interesting? One of the most honored Hebrew heroes is named by the Pharaoh's daughter. But what's so cool is that his name is significant not only in Egyptian, but in Hebrew. 
His name, the name Moses, is to be drawn out. And she named him that because she drew him out of the Nile. But not only does she draw him out, he is later going to become, and we're going to read about this this week and next week, he is going to be the one who will draw the people out of Egypt. Isn't that cool? Anyway, I think that's cool. And I'm the one speaking, so it's cool. All right? Okay. I understand I'm giving you a big paraphrase here because we're not going to look at the entirety of Moses' life. But Moses later um, goes on to be raised by his mother as a Hebrew midwife. So she, his, his sister sees him be rescued and she comes out of the bushes or wherever she's hiding and, she, and the Pharaoh's daughter um, is talking with her and she says, you're going to need a nursemaid. I happen to know someone who has recently had a baby and would be interested in being the nursemaid. His mother, she brings him to the Pharaoh, or she brings her to the Pharaoh. He is now being raised by his mother in the house of the Pharaoh, hearing about his people, his heritage, who they were as Hebrews, while also being educated by the most, the most established education system at the time. I mean, he is... He's going to, like, Harvard, in essence. He's raised by the Pharaoh. He, uh, I think one of the reasons I like the movie Prince of Egypt is because they do a really good job showing that he was an integrated part of the Pharaoh's family. Like, he wasn't just this weird, offshoot, adopted child. Like, he was treated as a, as a son. He was treated as, an, as a brother. Uh, all, I mean, he was treated as an equal, as he gets older, he knows he's not Egyptian, he knows he's Hebrew, and he's watching his people being oppressed, and he can't handle it. He lashes out in anger against two Egyptian guards and kill them. And out of fear, runs. He's old now. Uh, I believe this happens when Moses is around 40 years old. He's a man. And he runs. And he runs to Midian, another country outside of Egypt. It's interesting. We're going to look a little bit about it. Uh, Midian is on the other side of the Red Sea. It's outside of Egypt, which Egypt goes about up to the Red Sea at this point. He goes through the Red Sea to the land of Midian, and he gets married over there. He gets married to Jethro's daughter. Jethro was the high, the, the priest of the Midianites. His wife was uh, kind of a priestess for the Midianites. And he's there for 40 more years, living as a shepherd, okay? And this is where we pick up the story. He's taking care of his father's flocks, all right? So we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to start right at the beginning of that. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses thought, Mo Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him while with, uh, while with, from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
And then he said, I am the God of, the, of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them call, crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the, from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out, up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I to go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who, um, who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship uh, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and they say, and they say to them, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God said, uh, God said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me for, from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and I have seen what you have been, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us have three days to journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I will know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask their, her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Okay, so now we're into chapter 4. Moses answers, what if, I, what if they do not believe me or say to me and, uh, and listen to me um, and say, the Lord will not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hands. This, said the Lord, is so that you may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, of their fathers, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside into his cloak, 
And when he took it out, his skin was leprous, and it became as white as snow. Now put it back in your, into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you and pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. You have never been... I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord asked, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. It will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take, but take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. The word of the Lord. All right, that was a lot. This moment in Moses' life is pivotal. This is the burning bush episode. This is the, this is the turning point for Israel right now. Moses has run away from his home out of fear and he is living a normal life. He's a shepherd. He's been there for decades. He thinks life is going to continue as it always has. But while he was out in the wilderness, he came to the mountain of Horeb. This mountain is one of the most significant mountains in the Bible. This mountain is also known as Mount Sinai. This is the place where God will give the Ten Commandments. This is the place where God will speak to his people as a whole. This is the place where he gives them the the layout for the tabernacle. This is a significant mountain. And Moses is just out there with his sheep. And all of a sudden he sees off in the distance there's a bush that's on fire. And it draws him. He goes to investigate. And as he investigates, he realizes that it's burning, but it's not burning. It's on fire, but the bush itself is not being consumed. It looks like a normal bush, but it's on fire. So he wants to figure out what is happening. This is not you. Uh, this is not a normal thing. His usual life has all of a sudden become very unusual. And he goes and he he investigates closer. And as he comes close, the Lord speaks to him out of the bush. I think it's so interesting that when God speaks to Moses, he calls him just as he called Abraham. We talked a couple of weeks ago about when he says, uh, when he called Abraham, uh, he calls him 
by using his name, and he uses it twice. When he tells Abraham to go take Isaac to uh, to sacrifice him, he says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham's response is, here I am. And then when he's on the mountain and he's about to sacrifice Isaac, as he has got the knife in the air, God speaks again, Abraham, Abraham. And he is like, I am here. What do you need? Please stop what is about to happen. Centuries later, God appears to Moses in a bush and he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses' response is, here I am. That's interesting, right? It's interesting. And God tells Moses what he's there for. He says, listen, this ground here is holy ground. You, you have to take your, your sandals off. And he, he does. He takes his sandals off and he, he doesn't wear shoes while in the presence of the Lord. And he says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. The three patriarchs of his people. The one that God promised to each of them this promise. And as soon as he hears this, it says that Moses recognizes who this is and hides his face because he is afraid of who is speaking to him. He is terrified of seeing the glory of God firsthand. He hides his face. And I do not believe that he looks at the bush again because of his fear. Interesting side note. Moses is going to be on this mountain again with God later. And he's going to ask God to let him see him. And God says yes to an extent. He puts him in this like little crack in the rock so that all he can see is just a small sliver out. And then the glory of the Lord will pass in front of this sliver. And, and it really, in all honesty, uh, the Bible says that he only sees the backside of God's glory. And it is so radiant that it gives him this sunburn. Crazy. Side note. Sorry. Interesting. Because he, he's afraid of the glory of God right now. But after he witnesses and experiences everything God has for them in the, in the next short period of time in his life, which you're going to learn about next week with Josh, he has to see God. God says, I have heard the cries of my people. I have seen what has been done to them. I have seen the oppression and I am going to draw them out and you're going to be the one to do it. Moses is not ecstatic about this plan. He is scared. The interesting thing is, is that, no, that Moses has like always been scared. Moses has lived his life based in fear. Almost all of it. He has lived the last 40 years in fear of going back to Egypt. And here God is saying, listen, we're going to go back. And not only are you going to just go back and sort of sneak in and try to get the people out, you're going to go talk to the Pharaoh. And he is terrified. And he begins to throw back at God all the different reasons why he shouldn't be the one to do this. 
And he tries to be like, well, what do I say when I go? Like, who, when they ask me who it is, what do I say? And this is where we see the name of God. And the name of God is, it's interesting because it's not really a name. And it's translated, I am, I am who I am. It can also be translated, I am the one who makes things as they are. It can also be translated that way. When you read it in Hebrew, it's actually only four letters that have no vowels in them, and, and you're not really supposed to ever say the name. Anytime that you uh, read it in the scriptures, it's translated as Adonai, the Lord. And the Lord and the people of Israel won't ever use God's full true name, except for on the Day of Atonement. On that day, they call out on him because that is the day he will answer and give atonement. So they call him Adonai every other time, which means just the Lord. But they call him, I am who I am on that one day. In as history goes on, we have added vowels to it. And we know this name to be Yahweh. And when you translate it into even, when you translate even further into, into English, uh, we call him Jehovah. That is the name of the Lord. And it means, I am who I am. It's important to know the name of the Lord because millennia later, when uh, his son goes around doing ministry, he refers to himself in the same way which is what gets everybody hot and bothered. Because he is very much connecting himself to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who called the people out of Egypt, who brought them out with Moses. He is saying, I am the great shepherd, or the good shepherd. I am, and he uses it repeatedly, and he's specifically connecting himself to their history. So God is telling Moses, this is who I am. This is the one that you will say sent you. And he says, well, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen? What if they think I'm not telling the truth? And he says, what do you have in your hand? He says, I have a staff. It's funny to me that God asks, what do you have in your hand? Because obviously he knows what's in Moses' hand. But it's interesting because he's wanting Moses to be participant in this conversation. It's not just God saying, Moses, you have a staff in your hand. Moses, throw it on the ground. And there's a snake. Like he is purposely engaging Moses in a relationship-building conversation. He's saying, Moses, what's in your hand? He says, the staff. He says, throw it on the ground. And he does puts it on the ground, and it turns into a snake, a live snake. Not one of those weird rubber snakes you get at the zoo, like a live snake. And I believe it is more than just like a garter snake. I think this is a seriously dangerous snake because Moses runs away. God says, come back. Pick it up by its tail. When he does, he picks it up, and it instantly becomes a staff yet again. And God anticipates his 
rebuttal again and says, okay, they might not believe you by the staff. Now put your hand inside of your cloak. And he does, and he takes it out, and it says that his hand has become leprous. leprous. Leprosy was a very dangerous disease, um, but it was a very general term for lots and lots of basically skin diseases that were around at the time. There is a disease called leprosy, but in, in the ancient world, everything that was a skin disease was referred to as leprosy. And it was one of those things that you had to, you had to do special things to try to get cleansed from. And, and once you were, once it was healed, you could go to the temp, or to the priests and they would deem you clean again. But if it was that per, that persistent leprosy, that's what got people kicked out of the community because they couldn't ever get rid of it. It was contagious. He puts his hand, he pulls it out. It's totally white with disease. I guarantee you in that moment, Moses was terrified because this changes his entire life if he now has this. He will not be able to return to his family. He will not be able to do anything. He will be ostracized. And he says, put your hand back in your cloak. And he does. And he takes it out and is completely healed. God is showing Moses, listen, you're dealing with something more than just you going and talking to the Pharaoh. You're dealing with the, the, the ultimate power in the universe. He can transform a piece of wood into a live being, a snake. He can take perfectly healthy things and make them diseased and at the same point, turn it and restore it back to completeness. He says, now listen, if they still don't listen to you, what I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you to take a cup of water from the Nile and I want you to pour it out on the ground. And when you pour it out, that will no longer be water, but will be blood. Foreshadowing to a fairly significant plague that is going to occur in the future. Because not only will that cup of water become blood, the entire Nile and all water will become blood in Egypt. God has given Moses sign after sign after sign that he does not need to be afraid because God has said, I will go with you. I will be what you need. But Moses continues and says, wait a minute, I am not really a good speaker. If you hadn't heard my stuttering and my my inability to complete sentences, that's not just because you're God. That is just how I speak. And God first says, listen, who made your mouth? Who gave you the tongue you have? Who allows people to be able to see or to be able to be or not to be able to see? Who like who do you think you're talking to? I literally just turned your staff into a snake. Do you not think that I can cure you of your diseased mouth in this case? It wasn't really diseased, but his inability to speak clearly. And Moses says, no, but no, you don't understand. I really cannot speak. Moses is the most bold and whiny person in history. Moses says, or God says, fine. I'm going to send your brother to help you. 
the brother Aaron, who is, they don't really have priests yet, but will become the first priest of God in the new, in the new nation of Israel. He says, listen, I've actually already sent him. He's already on his way to meet you. God has anticipated Moses' fear and has already taken steps in order to get around it. And he says, listen, you're going to go with Aaron and Aaron is going to be your voice and you will be as I am to him. Meaning what I would have done for you, which would have been to tell you exactly what to say. I would have helped you say it. You're going to tell Aaron what to say and Aaron will be your voice for the people to the Pharaoh. And that was it. That ended the situation. God was sort of put his foot down and says, listen, we're done. This is happening. I don't think this staved Moses' fear much yet. He's got an incredible task ahead of him. He has been called to what will become the most pivotal moment in Hebrew history. So much that even to this day, they still remember it and celebrate it at the Passover. He is the linchpin. Everything has been leading up to him. And God has given him no ability to get out of it. He has, he has solved every problem so that Moses can go, hopefully with confidence, and bring the people out. I'm excited for next week, Josh. I'm disappointed that I'm not going to speak on it. Because the plagues are an amazing show of God's just awesomeness. His ability to really be over all things. We know that God is going to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. This is, this is where it all comes from. God will give Moses the things to say. God will direct Moses where to go and what to do. God tells Moses at the very end of this passage, he says, make sure you take your staff with you everywhere you go. That staff is going to become the conduit of God's presence and power with Moses. It'll be from that staff that Moses will perform every act of God's power from this point forward until he dies. Every plague he uses the staff. When he crosses the Red Sea, he hits the ground with the staff and the, the sea parts. Every time that God provides for them in the wilderness, it is through the staff. So much so that when the Israelites are whining and crying about having not fresh water and all these different things, out of anger, Moses uses the staff. He uses God's power in an angry way, which was not intended that way. To bring them water, God still provided, but unfortunately it makes Moses miss out on the promise because he misused God in that moment. Interesting. So what do we take from this moment? How many of you have seen a burning bush in your life? I have, but not this kind of a burning bush, right? Every time we have a burn pile, I look at the way that the, the branches are burning up and the leaves are just like, just going off like firecrackers. And I think about this story sometimes. I think about how God's presence was there. 
His presence was in the fire. The fire itself represented God. And that same symbol, that fire, will be the symbol that God will use for the rest of history as his presence. When Moses and the Israelites go into the wilderness, it will be the pillar of fire that will direct them where to go. The presence of God with them. There's other stories where God's presence appears in the fire, and I don't want to give them away because we're gonna, I'm going to preach on them in a couple of weeks. But in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit appears to the apostles, He comes in the form of fire. He, a little flame appears on their head. God's presence is in the fire. Fire is so cool because it, it really is alive. It doesn't have breath, and it but it definitely eats. God, God can consume just like fire can consume. But when God consumes us, it transforms us into something new. It doesn't destroy us the way the fire can. Isn't that cool? So what do we hear from this story? This is the thing that I, I think is so important to hear out of this story is that the Israelites have been in bondage for nearly 400 years. And God didn't forget them. But He heard them. He heard where they were at. He heard what they were going through. He watched what they were dealing with. Now, they were there for a while, and some people would argue, why did God wait so long? You're going to have to ask God that. I, I can't answer that for you. But he heard them when they were crying out for them, for him. We have endured many things in our lives, each of us. And they're normally pretty unique to our, our, our situation, our lives, our families. And every time we cry out to God, whether it's in pain, in sorrow, whether it's in a need for healing, whether it's even in joy, God hears us. He knows where we're at. And he wants to enter into it. He wants to work in it. He heard the Israelites and he said, I am going to free my people. Could God have freed his people by himself? Absolutely. He is God. He can do anything. But he chooses to involve this stuttering man who is just riddled with fear. To be his conduit. I know only about myself and the things that I deal with as far as hindrances. I know that I deal with fear just like a lot of people do. And when I think, how could God use me? <laughs> me. How could he use me to do anything? I think about other people he's used, and the Bible is an amazing source of watching God take totally broken people 
and giving them the ability to be used for his work. And so when you feel like God might not be able to use you, or when you feel like I am in such a situation, where is God in this situation? Maybe God is there and he's saying, do you see the burning bush? I'm here ready to draw you out, but you're going to be a participant in this. You have to be actively involved in it. I will bring you out. I will bring my people out. But you're going to have to be the one who joins me. There are times when God will miraculously fix things. But 90... I'm not going to give it a real percentile because I don't know. The majority of the time, God wants us to be involved in it. He wants us to be a participant in it. And just like Moses who couldn't speak, who was totally racked with fear about where he had to go, who he had to talk to. I think he was afraid to even go talk to his own people because his own people probably don't see him equally. When, when God can take someone like that and say, listen, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to show you what to do. You just have to follow me and I'm going to free you. I can do that. I can do that. If I can just listen for when God tells me to talk or do what I'm supposed to do, I can faithfully listen, which, you know, I try to do as best I can. Then God can transform whatever situation he finds me in. He can transform whatever situation he finds you in. He can transform any relationship that we're involved in. Ultimately, he can transform me to be what he wants me to be. I think we all have burning bush moments, not necessarily a real burning bush, but moments where God is evidently there. Don't ignore them. Don't just sort of like, oh, that was a weird moment. Like, investigate a little bit. Be sensitive to how the Spirit might be speaking in those moments. Because God might be ready for you to take a journey with Him. One where we can participate in how He wants to change something in our lives. Or in our community. Or in our church. Be sensitive to that. So that you can be a participant just like Moses was. Be prepared. Father, thank you for the fact that you use us. Because you don't have to. You're so messed up sometimes, but you still want us to be involved. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to listen when you call. Help us to move the way you want us to move and to talk the way you want us to talk. Lord, and forgive us when we get it wrong. We really want to just do the best we can with you. You will fix, you'll do the rest, just like it was with Moses. Trust you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.